In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. We are just doing our normal patrols we do every every season, checking on all the uh, all the boats and seeing how everyone's doing, make sure everyone has all their safety equipments and complying with all the uh, rules and regulations. That's Adam Nelson. He's talking about the work that he's doing, taking care of Canada's West Coast. But he doesn't work for the Coast Guard, or the Mounties, or a local police force. In fact, these waters can go weeks without seeing a single government official. But they are watched over, and they are cared for well. The people taking on this job are Indigenous. They are called Coastal Guardians. And although some of them may have powers to issue tickets, for instance, it's more apt to think of them as stewards of the land, their land. This is a centuries-old practice, but only recently has it been formalized with approval and funding from the government. It's a unique approach, and it's slowly making its way to First Nations across the country. So who are these coastal guardians patrolling the West Coast? What do they do, and why are they so needed? Is this a forward leap in terms of handing control of the land back to the people who have long called it home? Or is it another way for the government to outsource a job that they should be doing? How is this approach different from what these waters and forests have seen in the past? I'm glad that this is ongoing and I'm glad that it's growing even more because we are the protectors of the land and sea, of the resources of the land and sea. And that is very important for our people. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jimmy Thompson is the managing editor of the Capital Daily. But this piece was a freelance effort that he compiled for the Narwhal. Hi, Jimmy. Hello. Maybe you can begin then just by telling us about the origins of Indigenous guardians in general before it became more of a formalized thing. Like, how far does this practice go back? This goes back thousands of years. Um, the The formalized version is much more recent, but the uh, this is a traditional practice that's been, that that goes back to I mean a lot a lot longer than than we have records for. One form of record, though, is is if you look at uh, totem poles on the west coast, there are watchmen depicted on those. Now, I spoke with a, a Haida elder named Gujao, and he talked to me about the 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 origin of these guardians uh, before contact times. Watchmen were were literally that they were people who would watch the 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 water for invaders or for returning parties or for just kind of gathering intelligence about the 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 land and the water around them. 
And today, as it's more formalized, first of all, who does this job and and what exactly is the practice? We're going to get into, you know, all the details of the individual things they do, but like, what's the goal? The goal is to be the eyes and the ears of the First Nations um, that they work for. So that can mean uh, driving out on the land on a on a four by four or a or a skidoo. Um, it could mean piloting a boat out into the into the nearby waters. It could mean patrolling by foot. And when they're out there, they're projecting the sovereignty of their First Nation. So that that could mean a lot of things. Of course, that could mean taking scientific samples or telling tourists that you know this is the the nation's territory that they're on and and please respect it. It could mean uh, finding illegally placed crab traps. Any any kind of thing that you might imagine a park ranger doing, that's basically what the Guardians will be doing. We'll talk about the practice and, and how far it's spread and, and where it exists all over Canada. But first, for your piece, who did you spend the most time with? And, you know, why did they tell you uh, that they do this work and what their goals are? For this piece, I was able to go to Okino territory. Um, originally, I had I had intended and hoped to go to three First Nations on the coast, Haltsuk, Kitasu Heihes, and, uh, and Okino. Um, those are all sort of close together on the central coast of BC. Then the pandemic hit, so I didn't end up being able to go to all three. I went to just the one. And um, in Okino, I spent a lot of time with, with Adam Nelson and Corey Hanyus. They're both young guys. Um, Corey is, I think he's around 20, and Adam is in his mid-20s. Adam and Corey were incredibly proud of the work that they do. Um, they're, th- I went out on the boat with them a couple of times, and they're out there sort of chatting with other boats, with fishermen. Um, they're noting down the, the, the state of different sites. The, we, we spotted some wildlife, and they would they would mark that down. We visited a couple of cultural sites, and they checked in on those. So they're just kind of checking in on the land, just like a, a park ranger might do. The reason that they do it, um, I, I can't really speak for for them, or for especially not for a lot of guardians. But mm-hmm. the reasons that they gave me um, really had to do with pride uh, and, and duty. Adam had had this incredible, or sorry, Corey had had this incredible experience where he was uh, a youth in crisis. He was really having a hard time as a teenager, and he went up to Haida Gwaii, where it all started. And uh, he was on a sort of a, a youth camp there, and he just fell in love with the Guardians. He was so obsessed with the Guardians, wanted to follow them around and, and see what they were doing, and they just took him under, his, under their wing. And uh, he came back to Oakino just feeling like that was his future, that, that was his path. And... Uh, he just he had this incredible amount of pride, whether it was being out there driving the boat or whether it was um, collecting garbage for elders and bringing it to the dump. He was happy to be there and and just seemed to be glowing with pride at, at what he was doing. Tell me about the Oakino lands and you know where they are. Uh, what kind of territory are we talking about here for for people outside of BC or even in BC, nowhere near the coast? Yeah, so if you can picture Vancouver Island, it's a long, narrow island uh, that goes up the southern coast of BC. Uh, just off the northern tip of Vancouver Island is Rivers Inlet. It's a long inlet that kind of doglegs up into the into the coast, and that at the end of that inlet is Oakino. Their territory and their waters extend down that dogleg back out into the ocean. So it's this incredibly beautiful, quite remote 
First Nation, uh, hemmed in on all sides by mountains. Uh, those mountains were were pretty heavily logged. The inlet was very heavily um, fished by fishing lodges and and commercial fisheries. And north of that is uh, the the territory of the Heltsuk. And north of that, north sort of northwest of that, is the territory of the Kitasu Heihes. And all of them are in this sort of coastal margin bog forest, coastal rainforest territory. And it's sort of, if you can picture Vancouver Island and Haida Gwaii on the coast, they're, they're sort of nestled in between those two places. You've alluded a couple of times now to uh, Indigenous guardians doing the work that you would normally picture park rangers doing. Mm-hmm. Who else is supposed to be doing this work? Like, where are the, I guess not park rangers, since this isn't a national park, but like, you know, the Coast Guard, um, the people who would normally be patrolling these areas? One of the things that the Guardians do is rescuing people who might have had a, a mishap on a kayak or, or their, their boat has gotten lost or something like that. Um, and that, of course, as you say, is the kind of work that you might imagine the Coast Guard doing. But it's incredibly complicated and almost endless coastline. If you imagine all these inlets, all the islands, uh, all the straits and passages, it's just, it's a very complex and endless coast. So the First Nations, they're right there. They know, first of all, they know that area, but also they're, they're there. The Coast Guard does not have the resources or the manpower to patrol every single nook and cranny of the coast. It, it's not even really reasonable to expect them to, in fact. They, they have boats in Bella Coola, they have boats in Port Hardy, they have boats in Bella Bella, and, and then they patrol with their bigger, these sort of 43-meter-long Coast Guard ships that you can probably picture in your head. But they just they can't be expected to be everywhere at once. And so the, the Guardians are really filling in that gap that uh, is left by, by the absence of federal and provincial governments. Tell me about the times when having a guardian at hand when Coast Guard is nowhere around can make a difference. Yeah, this this is something that comes up again and again and again when you speak with guardians and with people in First Nations that have guardians. Uh, I was speaking with this carver, uh, George Johnson, someone that I had met a number of years ago and and went and visited him in in his carving shack in Oakino when I was there. He's just a, a lovely, lovely man. He was going upriver one day to get some wood. Some, he, he's, a, he's a carver, obviously, so he had gotten a contract to do some carving, um, and he, he knew exactly where to go and what, what kind of wood he wanted, so he was coming back with his load, went, came around the kind of the jetty, not really a jetty, but like the floating dock uh, on the river, and his boat got caught in a line and immediately started sinking. Like, there was, he, he said he just, he turned around and, and suddenly the back of his boat is underwater. So he had, he had no time at all to react and was suddenly in this very freezing cold water floating downstream. In, and it's late at night, or not late at night, sorry, it's after sunset. And so he is kind of disoriented. He's floating down the river. He jams his arm into a jerry can, and that's the only thing that keeps him afloat. And he can hear people who had sort of seen what was happening, and they're running down the, the, the bank of the river trying to help him, but there's not much they can do. And if you can imagine trying to call the Coast Guard dispatch in Bella Bella, which is uh, maybe 50, 60 kilometers away, so uh, maybe an hour by boat, by fast boat, it's just not going to happen. They, they can't get there in time. And so 
he eventually he did manage to get to shore on his own, but the guardians were right there, uh, and they they were the ones who who got him medical help and and who would have been the ones to rescue him had he not been able to get himself to shore. I've heard of kayakers who have capsized. I've heard of body recoveries. Unfortunately, um, they're just the guardians are the ones who are there in the community, and they can respond when when disaster hits. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. I'm trying to understand how formalized uh, these jobs are and and how much or how little, I guess, they vary uh, from First Nation to First Nation. Like, do they have official duties, official territory? Um, what is this job on paper? They they do have official duties, you know. They have you have uniforms and they have training. Um, and in fact, the, the the government, the Canadian government, is part of delivering that training. They they partner with these First Nations, okay, and and help them get the training that they need in, in for example, boat driving or emergency response. So yeah, the, the guardians' job it's it's a real job. It's a real career that you can that you can move through that you can get trained in and get paid for, just like just like anything else. What kind of power do they have? You know, you mentioned, uh, just as an example, um, crab traps that should not be planted in a certain place. Um, can they arrest people, ticket people, just remove the traps? Like, how do they compare to a member of the Coast Guard? Well, a good example is the crab traps. I, I spoke with Doug Nislas. He's the uh, resource conservation person at, at Kittisu, uh, sorry, at, yeah, Kittisu Heihei's First Nation. They're actually working on a pilot project. They have a pilot project on the go with the government where they have been effectively deputized to issue tickets, to have the same kind of power, enforcement power, as a, a park ranger might or a DFO officer might, just in the sense of being able to, to, to issue tickets or confiscate gear because there's a lot of illegal fishing that happens in their territory. So that's something that has been talked about uh, in, in a lot of different Guardian programs. I know that I, when I was in Bella Coola a number of years ago, Talking to their guardians, they were also pushing for that for themselves, and uh, in other places in in the north, especially the guardians are working with Parks Canada very closely, and they're effectively taking on the role of Parks Canada staff in places like Thaidenenene National Park in um, in Northwest Territories. I'm going to try to ask this question in. A sensitive way. We've talked a lot on this program about uh, resources that various levels of government allocate for uh, First Nations and Indigenous communities to police themselves, to protect themselves, protect their land, etc. Often, we're told that it's nowhere close to enough. And this program sounds amazing, and like some of the the work you describe going on is amazing. You could look at it from the other side and see this as the Canadian government outsourcing something it should be doing for First Nations communities to the communities themselves and perhaps not paying as much for it. 
I, I, I think I disagree with that take. Um, well, it's not a take. I'm just asking the question. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I disagree with that framing. I think because the what it really is is bringing the jobs that we might imagine um, sending some some person from Toronto or Vancouver up to to do, for example, checking on crab traps, and then saying to these First Nations on the coast, "What do you? What's your priority?" and where do you want to allocate your resources, and and we'll we'll support you in doing that. Um, but you know, is crab is illegal crab trapping really important to you? Hmm. Okay, then then here's the training you might need, or or the or the authority you might need to enforce the the uh, the rules that your First Nation has around illegal crab fishing. Right. In in doing so, they're also saving the government a lot of money. Sure, but but it, it's it's just it seems like a better use of resources, in in my opinion, to have people who are already there uh, taking on those responsibilities. Um, another thing that they can do, which is really fascinating uh, growth in in the science field right now, is something called uh, eDNA. And I don't know if it's something that you've spoken about on on the show before. I, I it is not. Explain it to us. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know why why this would be a thing that would make it onto this show, uh, but, but I think it's a really cool development in science, which is effectively the ability to take a a sample of water and send it to a lab somewhere, and then they can it, it, it examine that water for DNA that might be present in it. So you can get a sample, or uh, you can get an estimate of what fish are there, or what uh, mammals have even passed through that that stream. It's incredibly powerful technology, and most importantly, it means that you don't need to be there to see the fish. You don't need to, you know, put a electro fishing gear in the water and and count the fish that come up to the surface or whatever. Mm. You can just take a sample of water and and then use that to to get a, a representation of what's actually out there. So that means that people who maybe don't have that level of training can still be extremely useful in in conservation science. So that's being done by a lot of Guardians programs. What happens to all the data they gather from the eDNA stuff and the scientific research to, you know, data on illegal fishing or what's going on off the coast? Um, I imagine each First Nation keeps their own, but then the rest, you know, goes to the government to a uh, a central database? Like, how how transparent is the stuff that we're gathering out there? This is all owned by the nations, and some of it is shared between nations and, and with other organizations through data sharing agreements. Uh, so in my, in my case, they gave me their patrol data with a, a data sharing agreement that basically said, uh, don't share our sensitive sites, sacred sites and things like that. But they, they gave me all of this data, which is incredible. I, I went to the to DFO and I went to the Coast Guard to ask for that same data. You know, where are you patrolling? How often are you going? Who's going out there? What are you doing? And they, they laughed at me, you know, like they, they basically, they imagine a federal government or a provincial government even just handing over data from, right. from their patrol. It just doesn't, in Canada, we just, we're so far from that. Yeah. Um, our governments are the exact opposite of that. They're so, they, they hold and, and, and protect that information so jealously. I mean, they won't even let me talk to someone. I'm in the middle of another story right now where I'm trying to just get someone from DFO to talk to me about changes that they've made to a program actually, uh, after reporting that I, that I did and I was on this show to talk about the, the, um, fisheries observer mm, yeah. program, uh, 
yeah, that that's still happening. And I want to talk to DFO about it. And they canceled the only interview that they've given me in two years. They canceled it two hours before it began. Um, so I still have never spoken with anyone from DFO for it. And contrast that with the, the Guardians, where I asked them for, for data and three different First Nations all said, yeah, sure. What, what do you need? How can we work with you? What stuck out to you when you did get that data and, and look at it without revealing any of the secure, uh, secure sites? What was important in there? Um, it really shows how thorough they are. Uh, every square inch of that territory. I, I know I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna necessarily correlate the patrol area to their 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 land claims or things like that, because that's that's another area where um I think that I could probably get myself in trouble. Right. But they they are covering an incredible amount of territory. The Kitasu Heihe's First Nation, they covered eight thousand square kilometers of coast. And that's just coast. That's just the people in the boats. The the Heltzuk covered 3,000 square kilometers, and the Okino, and there's only a few of them, covered about three, uh, 2,000 square kilometers of their coast. So huge, huge amounts of territory are being covered um, over the course of a few months by these First Nations. And that's that's not counting the patrols they're doing inland. I know that, in, in, in for example, in Bellacula, they have huge uh, levels of, of land-based patrols where they're 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 going and chasing grizzly bears out of the community in the middle of the night and they're and they're patrolling for fishery stuff up river and all kinds of stuff so there's a ton more than than what i even got uh, through that data what's the future of this program and programs like it you mentioned uh, there's potential for it to expand to other first nations and it already has like it seems like there's a bigger vision at play here there is yeah there there are certainly there are currently about 70 of these programs nationwide and it's growing all the time. When I was in Northwest Territories in Thaidenenene National Park Reserve, that was one of the first, if not the first, national park that is co-managed by the local First Nation by, by guardians. They have a guardians program that's in Lutzelke, Northwest Territories, and that program um, is effectively the front line of monitoring in that park. That's happening more and more across the country, uh, up in up in the Arctic, especially where it's really hard to to get people. Uh, when I spoke with Catherine McKenna, the former environment minister, about this, she said she doesn't see any new parks being created without First Nations co-management, which is a, a huge sea change. If you imagine Wood Buffalo National Park, for example, in northern Alberta, that national park was created by forcibly displacing First Nations people and Métis people. They, uh, there are stories about cabins being burned behind them as they were escorted off the land. So incredibly traumatic and, and needless. Now we have parks that are being created specifically in the opposite direction, where, where First Nations are being brought in to manage it, to, to, to be the front line of conservation in those parks. That, I think, is, the, is, is one of the key parts of the future. That's only the, the, the parks part of it. There's also just remote places that are being stewarded more and more by uh, First Nations guardians. The guardians that you met and spoke to, do they want an increase of the kind of state power we talked about earlier, the potential to issue tickets and seize equipment and that kind of stuff? Or do they prefer to steward the lands in a different way? Like if they could have more from the government, what form would that take? You know, I, I can't really speak for them uh, again, but I could say that 
when I spoke with the guardians in Bellacula, they were very eager to have that sort of state power handed over to them because why not? They're they're the ones who are there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're wearing the uniform, and and they're the ones talking to the the fishermen. For example, if 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 they can't have that enforcement power, if they can't have that power of the state to issue a ticket, for example, it's a lot harder for them to project that power. So I think that that's probably the case for a lot of guardians programs and and people in in guardians positions. Um, but I, yeah, I, I can't really speak for them about what they would want. I know that it probably wouldn't exactly correlate to the way that, that governments handle their, their enforcement duties or, or uh, other, you know, sort of stewardship duties out in, in the territories right now. The last thing I'll ask you is maybe just about philosophy in terms of if there is any difference between um, how people working uh, as Coast Guards would see the land versus how First Nations guardians or Indigenous guardians would see it, um, even if it doesn't necessarily correlate to different kinds of of power and methods. You know how how do they approach this job that's different from how the Coast Guard would? I've been on Coast Guard ships and spoken with a lot of people who work in Coast Guard jobs, um, and I know that they love being out on on the sea, they love being out on the territory, and they have a, a lot of respect for, for the land that they're working on. So I, I, I don't want to suggest that that's not present for them. Sure. But I think that it's different when it's your First Nations territory, and you've grown up there, and you've uh, learned from, you know, from the, the people in your life and the people in your community about this or that site. And you know that at the end of the day, if the, the, the crab stocks are kept healthy, then your kids and grandkids will be able to, will will be able to feed themselves from that land. I think that's, that's the big difference is the ownership and the feeling of, uh, of belonging on that land. When you're visiting there as a, as a member of the Coast Guard or maybe a, a, a BC Parks Patrol, I don't think you, it, it would be hard to have that same sense of ownership, even if you feel the same love and the same duty to protect it. And so I think that the people who are working for Canadian governments really do value uh, the protection that they're doing. It's, it's just hard to imagine that they have the exact same connection. Jimmy, thank you so much for this. Really fascinating. Thanks so much. Jimmy Thompson, writing for The Narwhal. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Talk to us anytime via email, the big story podcast, all one word at rci.rogers.com. And of course, you can find us in every single podcast player. You pick one. You listen to us there, like us, rate us, review us, tell your friends, whatever you want to do. We appreciate any sort of organic promotion. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.